Morning, church. Morning. I'm going to steal that and use that from now on. <laughs> I've, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I, I wish that you all had already heard the sermon, had already dealt with it for the time of worship, because it often just enhances my experience, and I appreciate the, the songs and the spirit and the, uh, the effortless um, worship that takes place here. So thank you, worship team. I'm Andrew. Andrew Clever, by the way. I keep forgetting to mention that, though uh, many of you, I'm, I may be new. You see, when I first came to Florida, I came as Carrie's husband and uh, even went to her uh, childhood church, her family's church, and um, served as an interim youth pastor, and everybody knew who I was instantly and would say hi to me. And I had no idea who anybody was except for her immediate family. So I've kind of gotten used to not introducing myself to avoid awkwardness, and I should get over that. But I'm Andrew. And I am the pastor of ministries here, um, which is as broad as it sounds. I have my hand in many things from youth to stream team to um, I sit on a box here and hit it on other Sundays. Um, which is an odd ministry to be involved in, but I found it. Um, And one of the other ministries um, I'm involved in is the preaching ministry, especially, but not only, when Caleb is out of town, um, but sometimes he hangs around uh, to listen, and I appreciate that you all hung around too. To begin today's message, I would like to try a brief experiment. I'd like for everybody, where you are, without without moving or or showing any signs, I would like for you all to spontaneously be hungry. Now, some of you, especially the guys in the room, are probably like way ahead of you, Andrew. (laughs) And in that case, be thirsty instead. Okay, go. Well, how did it go? How do you feel? Did it work? Can... Anyone, by mere intention, by sheer act of will, become hungry or thirsty for that matter? No. And so when we read in today's passage that Jesus says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, we could think it's simply a fancy way of Jesus saying, be righteous. Sounds like a statement from like 90s surf culture, right? Be righteous. But that's not quite what's going on here. Jesus isn't giving a command. He's making a statement. The kingdom is made of such as these who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And so what is the natural response or what would have been the natural response to the group of people who are called disciples, followers of Jesus? How How would those who are thrilled at the thought that the kingdom of heaven is near, how would they respond to such an announcement? Let me ask it this way. What would our natural response be if I were to say something like, blessed is the cheerful giver, for God loves you. From 2 Corinthians 9, 7, paraphrased. 
I think the Bible actually speaks like this a lot. Let me try to envision some of the responses to a cheerful giver is loved by God. Some will say, I don't know, giving is kind of hard for me. That's a really tough standard. Others might say, yes, I've given a lot to charity recently, tax season and all. Some might say, nah, I don't want to give that much. And some might even say, hmm, I think I'm pretty cheerful about giving, maybe. In each case, regardless of what the response is, the natural thing to do is not to jump to the command implied, but to self-examine, to ask, does this describe me already? And probably the response is to be uncertain in most cases, if not discouraged. But perhaps the most dangerous of the responses is the one that is most confident that the answer is yes, because they have the external appearance of being a cheerful giver. I would argue that each beatitude is articulated in such a way to describe a condition of the heart rather than external behavior. External behavior follows the heart, to be sure, and we can see that consequence so clearly that we could miss what Jesus is actually saying. Your heart. Your heart is what he's after. Your heart is what needs to find the kingdom. It is the position and direction of your heart. And so, each of the Beatitudes pronounces a blessing on those with certain internal postures of the heart, as opposed to external forms of piety, a distinction that will play out in the rest of the sermon, as well in the whole of Jesus' teaching ministry. This is true for the Beatitudes we looked at last time, and especially true in the Beatitudes before us today. Why? Because these three, as we will see, can easily be mistaken for external forms of righteousness. There's an implicit contrast between showing righteousness, showing mercy, showing purity, and being hungry, being merciful, and being pure in heart. The ones who merely display their righteousness are in fact being excluded, while those who are poor mourning and meek concerning their righteousness are included. How genius is it that Jesus is opening the gate of the kingdom to those who wouldn't presume to claim entrance while at the same time showing how narrow the gate is that leads to life. So this is the second sermon on the Beatitudes in this little series within a series on the Gospel of Matthew. Caleb began last week with verses 1 through 5. Wisely, he gave me only three verses to sort of drag you through this week. And so, if you're able, please stand with me. I'm going to read, once again, the whole passage, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 12, though today we will only be focusing on verses 6 through 8. Jesus said, or not yet, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, 
And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please be seated and pray with me. Lord, we want to be in your kingdom. And we want to represent your kingdom to the world. May we receive the challenge of the picture Jesus paints of blessedness. And may we resist the temptation now to minimize or ignore or dismiss these characteristic norms of life under your rule and care. May we be challenged by your righteous standard and comforted by your gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So when Jesus lays the foundation for the character of the kingdom, the norms of the kingdom, as we have said, what comes to his mind? Last week, we saw three very surprising categories. The poor in spirit, the mourning, and the meek. This week, we're on at least seemingly more familiar ground, right? I mean, we're turning to norms of righteousness. That sounds like the kingdom of heaven, doesn't it? I think we can agree that poverty of spirit, mourning, and meekness are not typical qualities associated with righteousness. Or at least if they are, it's probably because of what Jesus says right here. Meekness, for example, doesn't make a list of virtuous characteristics. But righteousness, mercy, purity sound like mainstays, don't they? And so the fourth beatitude marks a sort of transition into proper categories of righteousness. Obviously, mercy and purity and later on, peace, are enormous recurring themes of righteousness throughout the scriptures. And so, what's happening? Why did Jesus say in the first say in the first three, and how does that relate to the rest of the Beatitudes? What is the relationship between meekness and righteousness? I would put it this way. Poor, mourning, and meek set the baseline for the kingdom culture. They sketch out, as it were, the narrow gate for all who enter the kingdom to pass through. But the kingdom is not just about entrance, is it? It's about life and growth, and right relationships. 
Maybe we could put it this way. The first three Beatitudes are about realizing what we are not. And the next three are about realizing what you are. The first three have a negative quality, against pride, against sin, against selfishness. But here we transition to positive norms of righteousness, mercy, and purity, all worthy of desire and pursuit. If we think of verses three through five as having a gospel justification focus, we could think of six through eight having a gospel sanctification focus. Those who have been qualified will continue by being contributing members to the kingdom community. And so, let's turn to verse six, where Jesus pronounces the fourth beatitude concerning hunger for righteousness. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Before we get into it, I should probably point out that if we were reading Matthew straight through, it would seem that Jesus just finished being hungry and thirsty at the beginning of chapter 4, when the devil tempted him to miraculously make bread from stones. And the whole point was that true life, true satiety, if you will, comes from the all-satisfying word of God. So here, when Jesus says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, it's hard to ignore the connection between, being, between righteousness and the word of God. Likewise, if we were to go back further into chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized, he did it to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus has been modeling righteousness already leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. There's another connection that we could draw later to the last beatitude especially concerning those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Isn't it interesting that the very thing the disciples hunger for is the basis of their persecution. But I'll leave it to Caleb to sort that out next week. Kind of a little homework assignment. That felt good. (laughs) Nevertheless, righteousness is a recurring theme in Matthew. Indeed, in the whole New Testament, of course. And we'll attempt a definition shortly. But the main observation I'd like you to get here is that righteousness is a very broad term encompassing many, if not all, the norms of the kingdom. But before we deal with defining righteousness, we have to deal with hunger and thirst first. I had, I think, a poignant realization as I was meditating on this verse, and I imagine most of you can relate. I've never truly been hungry or thirsty, at least not in the way this image would have resonated with Jesus' disciples. And not in the way that Jesus himself did in chapter 4. He was in the wilderness for 40 days and nights without food. I don't know what that's like. Even when I'm hungry, it's not filled with concern for my survival. The disciples, if they hadn't known hunger like that, they knew those who had. But that intensity of desire is built into this beatitude. Put bluntly, we're talking about the harsh hunger of the desert dweller 
and not the quick hunger of the well-fed. That's how disciples will yearn for righteousness. And this would have been familiar to Jesus' followers. Listen to the beginning of Psalm 63, for example. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Saying that those who hunger and thirst are blessed is more emphatic than we modern readers would readily recognize. Okay then, so what does Jesus mean by righteousness here? As I said, it's a broad term, but it sometimes does take on a technical meaning in context. Take, for instance, how Paul in his letters will talk about righteousness. Romans 3.21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Paul uses righteousness to refer to justification before God. The believer is considered righteous by faith in Christ, not because they have achieved righteousness. That usage is standard throughout Paul, and we could import that meaning into Matthew and miss the point. Jesus is not likely talking about justification here. More likely, he's talking about personal righteousness, living in accordance with God's will, and more generally, a desire for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, as we will read later in the Sermon on the Mount. So my working definition of righteousness is walking in right relationship with God. But concerning that connection to justification, I think we do Paul, who uses the word in that legal sense a lot, a disservice if we disassociate the two usages between legal righteousness and personal righteousness. It's nonsensical to claim a desire to be considered legally righteous before God and not a desire to be made morally, personally righteous by God. So it's not like the two meanings have nothing to do with each other. Far from it. So putting things together, it's especially interesting that we are not talking directly about righteousness, but about hunger and thirst for righteousness. Note carefully, awareness of the lack of righteousness is not hunger for righteousness. We can lack many things, good things, and be unaffected, can't we? There are many, in fact, who are well aware of their unrighteousness and are hungry for more of that. So hunger for righteousness includes both awareness, painful awareness, and a longing to be filled. In that way, you could paraphrase what Jesus is saying as, blessed are those who have a desire for a desire. Or as an old pastor friend of mine used to say, we should want our wants to change. 
And this is a great point to lay out the principle of the structure of the Beatitudes. As we move on from the foundational first three into areas of sanctification, we will regularly be confronted with our falling short of the standard. And as we receive the proclamation of the norms of the kingdom, we will be confronted with our helplessness to change our desires. Even when we want our wants to change. Concerning righteousness, for example, we are likely painfully aware that we're not hungry. We're not thirsty. And I suggest when we are so confronted with our helplessness, we are driven back to the first Beatitudes. We are awakened afresh to our poverty of spirit, aren't we? We are awakened to our neediness. And we mourn. And we humble ourselves. Do not abandon hope when the blessing doesn't fit you. Instead, humble yourself and confess to the Lord. As Jesus says, blessed are the hungry for they shall be satisfied. Not because you created the food yourself, because it is a gift from God. And so we can see this satisfaction play out in a number of ways, actually. If the hunger for righteousness is for righteousness to be done generally in the world, to see righteousness, to see on earth as it is in heaven, the blessing is pretty straightforward, actually. If you want to see righteousness, I have good news for you. The end of the story is secure. Heaven and earth will pass away. And the new heavens and the new earth will be established rid of unrighteousness. So no worries. All will be satisfied to see the righteousness of God in the end. For those who hunger for it, it will be satisfaction. For those who don't, it will not. And while this is true, and it fits, I don't think it quite exhausts the application. I would say it this way. If I have an earnest desire to see God's will done in the world, but not in my own life, I'm a hypocrite. I'm playing the role of a hypocrite. If my hunger is always for others to seek God's kingdom and righteousness first, while I'm content to seek my own selfish desires, I'm a fool. And so my hunger for righteousness must begin with my own heart, my own thoughts, and my own actions. And of course, there's yet something else missing for those who hunger for righteousness. Righteousness is an alignment with the will of God, yes, but righteousness is also a person. Hunger for righteousness is hunger for the righteous one. And so the hungry and the thirsty must turn to Christ. Put another way, if you want to organize your life around the will of God, you can only find Jesus at the center. 
And so when you're driven back to poverty of spirit, when you mourn your unrighteousness, and when you're humbled by your unworthiness, you are right where God wants you, dependent on Christ for your righteousness by faith. But, but, that does not mean, it cannot mean that you lose your taste for personal righteousness. It doesn't mean that you abandon the pursuit of walking in right relationship to God. I'll give the final word on that to Paul in Ephesians 4, verses 20 through 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen. Returning to the text before us today, next we have verse 7, where Jesus addresses the fifth beatitude. I like to keep count. Fifth beatitude concerning mercy. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Okay, Jesus modeled hunger and thirst before announcing the blessing on those who hunger and thirst. He modeled righteousness in his baptism. Has he modeled mercy already in Matthew's account? Now, if you were to do a word search, you might be disappointed, but surprise, surprise, yes. It's not labeled as mercy, but I think we can agree that Jesus' healing ministry as it's described at the end of chapter four, immediately before the Sermon on the Mount, could be called merciful, for sure. In fact, you could say Jesus was already famous for his being merciful. I'm kind of assuming that mercy is easier to define than righteousness, but I suppose we should get a definition before us. I like how concisely Bible commentator D.A. Carson puts it. It's one of my favorite guys. Mercy embraces both forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for the suffering and the needy. It's mercy. Blessed are those who are forgiving and compassionate. I hope it's clear by this point, like uh, be hungry, we can't simply be merciful. Wait a minute, you might say, I most certainly can be merciful. I choose to be merciful all the time. Okay, well, let me make a distinction for you. Yes, we can choose to show mercy. And that is a good thing to do, I should think. But we cannot choose to be merciful. Our acts of mercy could be the consequence of any number of internal motivations unrelated to a heart of mercy. We can show mercy in order to lord it over someone or to be seen as merciful and get a pat on the back or because we don't really want to trouble ourselves with punishing someone or because we've been shamed into an act of compassion. The list could go on. This is why I think Jesus says those who are merciful rather than those who show mercy, are blessed. 
Now, he could, of course, say it either way, and we should be able to see that true mercy cannot flow from a heart of pride and self-righteousness. Nevertheless, blessed are the merciful. I should mention, we're familiar enough today with the attitude towards mercy that says, to show mercy is to reveal your weakness to your enemies. What that means, in fact, is that we should not be surprised when people take advantage of those who are merciful. We should expect it. But that doesn't mean we should avoid mercy. It does give a strong temptation to withhold mercy, for sure. But there's another temptation that is just as strong and I would say more pernicious. To offer help without compassion and call it mercy. To forgive someone without removing guilt and call it mercy. Put another way, to show mercy without being merciful. We should definitely show mercy, but blessed are the merciful. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't specify the object of our mercy? Mercy is decontextualized intentionally. What that means is that mercy is the normal posture of the kingdom member, regardless of the situation. That is to say, a heart of mercy is not looking for a list of conditions to be met and not looking for a payback. You could say, mercy is not a tool to be applied in this situation or that. Mercy is a state of being in the kingdom. It dwells in the heart of those who follow the merciful one. Furthermore, this isn't the only place Jesus associates being merciful to others as a sign of your own receiving mercy, right? Forgive and you shall be forgiven. And I have to say, this is a notoriously tricky blessing. Why? Well, does Jesus mean if you show mercy to others, God will show mercy to you? If not, what does he mean? And why does he say it this way? Because it sure sounds like give mercy, get mercy. Well, let me start by saying you don't want God's mercy to be transactional. As if our motivation for mercy towards others is merely self-interest, trying to sort of balance the scales in our favor. Have you ever had a friend who was just a really good gift giver? You know, someone who knows what to get you better than you know what to ask for yourself? And you always feel like your gifts to them are less significant by comparison? How much worse would that be if the only reason you ever gave a gift was to get another in return? cheapens it, doesn't it? To the nth degree, God is a really good mercy giver. 
And if mercy is transactional, you won't be able to keep up. A danger of this mistaken interpretation is that we are already so quick to treat mercy as a currency, a bargaining chip to convince people to do what we want or in exchange for God's mercy. Banish this thought from your mind. Whenever I show mercy, God will respond with mercy towards me. It is not true. It reduces the marvelous mercy of the Almighty to a gumball dispenser. In place of those who give mercy, get mercy, put this. Those who know mercy, show mercy. God is merciful. He causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. You receive mercy from the hand of the God, from the hand of God all the time. And for rebels against the kingdom to be allowed to stand at all is a perpetual testimony to the mercy of God. It's already happened regardless of your response. However, even when you have received the mercy of the gospel, the forgiveness of your sins, freedom from guilt and shame, even the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness towards you in Christ Jesus, even then, you will certainly endure hardships. In just a couple verses, Jesus will say that you are even blessed if those hardships reach the level of persecution. You will often have to suffer through the consequences of sins you've been forgiven for. Or maybe the sins of others who have or have not been forgiven. In spite of all that, the poor, mourning, and meek, and hungry for righteousness, those kingdom folk will become more and more like the merciful one because they know mercy. And they may not, they, they will not be removed from every hardship, but they will receive mercy in the ultimate sense, in the sense that counts, and that's what they want. That's what we want. Disciples want mercy now, for sure, but they want forgiveness more than to pick up their bed and walk. And they want, they are content to wait on the Lord for mercy in his time. The emphasis, I'm saying, must land on the ultimate posture of God towards us, on the eternal and not on the, these individual temporal cases. If you don't receive mercy in an isolated instance, don't worry. God will show mercy in his time. Because short-term mercy is nothing compared to eternal mercy. Hunger and thirst for that. If you know mercy, you will show mercy. 
and the final judgment towards you, praise the Lord, will be one of mercy. Isn't that a blessed thought? Finally, Jesus turns to the sixth beatitude for those counting concerning purity in heart. He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, certainly, purity is among the expected qualities of righteousness, even one of the chief qualities of righteousness, along with mercy. But does this beatitude seem out of place? I mean, it is surprising that the pure in heart, is it surprising that the pure in heart are the ones who will see God? It's not like when we talk about the poor and the meek, they receive unexpected blessings. The meek inherit the earth, what? Here, it may be unexpected to the disciples, that is, that anyone will be able to see God. Perhaps more clearly than any other beatitude, this one seems to be a reference to a specific psalm. I'll read it for you. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. Let's see what this enlightens. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. This Psalm of David celebrates the Lord, if you were to read the whole thing, Psalm 24. The King of glory, who has created the earth and the fullness thereof. And it asks the question, who will receive the blessing from the Lord? Who gets to enter into his presence and see God? And along with that blessing, righteousness from God, it says. To enter the presence of God and see him face to face. From the perspective of the psalm, purity of heart could be paraphrased as perhaps undivided worship. It reminds me of Jesus' statement to the woman at the well that the Father is seeking true worshipers in spirit and in truth. I mentioned in the other two Beatitudes, so I should point it out here too, that Jesus has already modeled in Matthew an unshakable devotion to the Father. It's not called purity, but when the devil tempts him to turn his worship away to the devil himself, Jesus modeled purity of heart. So once again, Jesus has modeled the righteousness that we should hunger after. And Jesus continues to make a distinction between external forms of righteousness and inter the internal condition of the heart. Here, obviously, 
He makes that distinction most clear by naming the heart as the location of purity. So, what's the heart? Well, we are all familiar with using the heart as a metaphor for love and the seat of the emotions versus the mind or the the gut, perhaps. To Jesus and his first listeners, the heart would have been all of that and more. The heart contained not only the emotional, but also the rational and the volitional self. The heart was the source of feeling, especially loving, but also reasoning and desiring. If being pure in heart didn't already seem like sort of an unreachable standard, being pure in every thought, in every reason, and in every motive is rare indeed. Which brings me to one of my favorite quotes. I haven't shared it in a while, so it must be time. This is by English writer William Somerset Maugham, who was, uh, to my knowledge, not a believer, but understood some things. For my part, I do not think I'm any better or any worse than most people. But I know that if I set down every action in my life and every thought that has crossed my mind, the world would consider me a monster of depravity. I think we find here a reason why Jesus would specify pure in heart. If not only to make the connection with Psalm 24 clear, it's because of all the Beatitudes, purity is one of the, we are most inclined to fake, to pretend. If mom is right, we're all monsters of depravity. And the only reason we don't scare each other is because we have a purity filter turned on. And yes, leave the filter turned on, please. But we still shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking we are pure because we're good at hiding our true selves. And so Jesus will address external purity much later in Matthew. You'll have to wait, uh, what, a year and a half to, to get here. Not in a list of blessings, but in a list of woes. Matthew 23, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. The point is to make a distinction between the pure and the pure in heart. Those who are externally pure are not the ones who should expect to see God. But those who are pure in heart, pure internally, those are the ones who have reason to hope to see God. But what does this blessing refer to? What does it mean to see God? Might seem like an easy answer. I can't help but notice that Jesus, 
who's pronouncing this blessing is himself, God, standing in front of them, right? He could be talking about himself. It's kind of funny that he could be standing in front of them saying, someday the pure in heart will see me. I suppose it would mean something like, you will see me for who I truly am, which is a beautiful blessing. Okay, but now Jesus is not visibly standing in front of us, so how are we supposed to take it? First of all, it could still be a promise to see the Lord Jesus as he truly is. Maybe not now, literally, but when this life is over. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I mean, he will be revealed to the whole earth at his second coming, even, even though you could argue that many who are not pure in heart will therefore see the Lord. Um, but I would say again that the emphasis must fall on the final condition. If you encounter the Lord in judgment and are driven from his presence, maybe that doesn't count. And maybe the impure those with impure eyes can't, in fact, see the Lord. Even when he is plain for all to see. In any case, Jesus could mean that the pure in heart will ultimately receive their desire as they seek the face of God. Second, he could mean that those who are pure will enjoy the blessing of seeing God now, meaning they will perceive the will and the working of the Lord in their lives and in the world around them. Makes sense. Or he could mean both. I don't think we need to choose between meanings. The merciful receive mercy now and later. Those who mourn can receive both comfort now and comfort in the end. And so the pure can see God at work now, even as they wait to literally see his face in the future. Whichever interpretation we choose... I insist that the final state is where we must place the weight of the blessing. What good is it to gain your heart's desire now only to lose it in the end? How about another experiment? Everybody, instead of being hungry this time, I want you to all pretend to be hungry. Huh? Well, that's not going to work, actually. It's lunchtime, and it's, I've gone my normal uh, amount of time. So I'll ask this question instead. Do you think we are more likely to pretend that we are hungry or to pretend that we are full? It's, it's time for my requisite Arthur illustration. Those who have been here any length of time through any of my previous sermons can attest that I typically have at least one reference to Arthur in each sermon. Uh, it's safer than using Carrie as an illustration. <laughs> I do it sometimes. Why do you think that Arthur would suddenly blurt out, I'm full, even before he tastes his dinner? You got it. He doesn't like what's on the plate. Or at least he thinks he doesn't like. He doesn't taste it. How does he know? Well, Arthur can't be full. He can't be satisfied without eating. 
It's probably also instructive that he won't ever be satisfied with cookies because they don't satisfy. Likewise for us, in the three Beatitudes we're looking at today, Jesus is presenting the righteousness that satisfies. And we must remember that we will only be satisfied by taking and eating this meal before us. For we will not be satisfied apart from righteousness, mercy, and purity from the Lord. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, forgive me if I have complicated what you have made so simple and stated so clearly. You desire righteousness, mercy, and purity in your kingdom. As simple as it is, Lord, we confess that your standard is too high for us. But what a wonderful promise it is that if we hunger for it, we will be satisfied. We know that we can't bring our own righteousness to the table, but Christ is sufficient to satisfy each righteous hunger and thirst. Teach us, Lord, to see ourselves honestly. Teach us, Lord, to fall back once again on your mercy and grace as you remind us that we are poor. We have reason to mourn and reason to be meek. And Lord, we are willing to wait on you. In Jesus' name, amen.